Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. I hope you all had really good Thanksgivings. I'm airing this on the Monday afterwards, but recording this beforehand. So I hope you had good turkey and stuffing and all of the good stuff. Um, my patient today is Eric Kim, a former senior editor at Food 52, who is now a staff writer for the New York Times and the author of the upcoming cookbook, Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home. In today's session, we talk all about stumbling into food writing. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to be a food writer. I, I, I haven't heard that version. I suspect we're going to hear that version a lot more in the future. Cooking for other people. The purpose of cooking for someone else has, has changed for me. It used to be about showing off, but now it's just about like feeding, feeding someone who really needs to eat. And experiencing racism in the food world. It's hard in those contexts to defend yourself when you feel so like powerless and and worthless. So without further ado, here's my lunch therapy session with Eric Kim. All right. Well, Eric, it's so nice to finally meet you. And I'm saying that sincerely because I've been following you forever. Yeah. Likewise, I feel like we should have met by now, but the pandemic happened. So yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations on all the exciting things that are happening for you. I mean, New York Times cooking column um, or magazine column. That's amazing. Uh, you've got a cookbook coming out. Uh, what else? That, those are the big headlines, right? Yeah, I think so. I'm in the middle of a lot of um, reporting and but also PR on the side. And so it feels uh, I was just thinking it would be so nice to have some help, but I don't know if <laughs> I'm there yet. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to air this the Monday after Thanksgiving. So as a starter question, and you might be sick of talking about this, but for those who are curious, what are you doing for Thanksgiving this year? Oh, I'm so excited. I'm all my friends dropped out. I, I was trying to host a Thanksgiving, but my friend, Jesse Shevchuk, he also has like a book out. So he's super busy. Um, Cookies? Is that his book? He's, yeah. You should have him on. He's really lovely, but um, yeah, all my friends are too busy. So I'm going upstate with my boyfriend and mm -hmm. we're going to have a lovely like weekend, um, just the two of us and my dog. But then uh, on actual Thanksgiving day, I think we're going to be back in Manhattan and I'm going to, I think we're just also, gonna, we're going to cook another Thanksgiving day. <laughs> I don't know. So it's sort of, um, I'm like obsessed with Thanksgiving. So it's kind of funny that you're bringing me on for this. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> Thanksgiving um, yeah, person. Uh, well, I'm not going to grill. I mean, we're really here to explore your psychology. So don't, you know, this is not a Thanksgiving <laughs> podcast because by the time this airs, people are, will be over Thanksgiving and ready for <laughs> holiday cooking. So do, when you, when you work at the times and like you do, cause I know that you did a column or an article about like an easier Thanksgiving or like making it simple. How far ahead did you start working on that? You know, not as far as ahead as I would like, um, as mm -hmm. you know, juggling a lot and, but, uh, I, I was thinking about that menu for months for sure. And really? I think it was assigned a long time ago. So, but you know, at, at a daily paper, you're sort of working week to week and mm -hmm. you know, I'm really bad at idioms, but is it flying by the seat of the something? Uh, flying by the seat of your pants? Yeah, sure. Which <laughs> I don't understand it. Anyway. Um, yeah. yeah so I don't I, get it either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to teach writing and uh, they were, they were these um, college students, freshmen, and I would always mess up the idioms and ask them if they knew what it meant and none of them knew either and I think idioms are just like going out of stuff like yeah. <laughs> even when you learn what the actual idiom is you realize that you had it wrong and that you don't actually know what it means so I, I always think that's like really funny anyway <laughs> I, um, <laughs> um, okay so you, you, you started ahead um, and so I was going to ask you so you, your career I mean we're going to get into all this but like you, did you start at food 52 was that the first stop in all of this no actually the first stop was Columbia University. I feel like oh, people wow. don't know that. But um, uh, when I graduated college, the first thing I did was go into a PhD program in literature because mm. I like wanted to be a professor. And that was the thing that I wanted to do. I had wanted to be an English professor since 10th grade. I remember, wow. I remember deciding that. I was like, I think academia is the life for me. And in many ways it was. And so I, I got halfway through this program and um, just hate, like, I hated it by the end. Mm -hmm. So depressed, the most depressed I'd ever been. Uh, it was a really toxic environment too, um, because, and, and it actually came out later that, um, no one in my class got a job. There was like, there were these, <laughs> there were these headlines and it was a huge controversy because it's like, wow. 
you train us for like six years and then you throw us out into the world and none of us were, were prepared. And so I, right. I felt, I felt hard, I, I found it really difficult to do that kind of work. Sorry, my dog's eating her lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is going on there? But you know, that makes sense. Okay. There's so much. Um, yeah, she, uh, she wasn't eating for a while. So I'm glad she's eating lunch. Aww. It was important to eat. Uh, so, you, yeah. so you studied, it's actually interesting because I went to law school and hated it and it was a toxic environment. Yeah. And that's what led me into my food career. So maybe the secret to having a food career is to make yourself really miserable in grad uh, school and then yeah. <laughs> pull yourself out with food. <laughs> it's a story I hear often, actually. Like people who end up in food, no one wakes up and says, I'm going to be a food writer. I, I, I've heard that version. I suspect we're going to hear that version a lot more in the future, mm-hmm. with younger uh, writers, but I really stumbled into it. And sometimes I look at where I am. I'm like, how the hell did I end up here? It's <laughs> so random and, and beautiful and wonderful. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, after, after that, um, after my third year, I had the option of taking a terminal degree, which is like an MPhil. No one even knows what that is. Um, or continuing on to the, to the, PhD and so I decided to leave as did like three four other people and it was such a toxic place that I didn't even know that other people had also left and Hmm. matriculation is like pretty low and anyway um I I got lunch with my boss my former boss at Food Network Michelle Buffardi and it was um I had I had like freelanced for her I kept I was a freelancer through my academia and um just over the summers because you know you had to pay for your rent and then uh she she, I had also I met her because I was an intern a long time ago uh, in college so it was kind of this one random job in the very beginning that turned into this string of jobs Mm -hmm. and um really that one person (laughs) Michelle before and we still like chat every day and she um she gave me a job she was like I don't know if you want it but we have this job and it was this entry-level job called uh digital asset coordinator and it, it was like <laughs> I was just so excited to get a salary and uh-huh. but the job was me um data entry I was like tra- I, was, I was just taking things from an excel like spreadsheet and putting it into the thing that becomes oh foodnetwork.com <laughs> so in this process though this very like kind of monotonous job I, I really learned how to write a recipe I, I learned mm-hmm. how they should look and I learned a lot from the editors there people there and then eventually I was promoted to um, a position called like digital manager. All the jobs are weird because they sound weird because and non-traditional because um, foodnetwork.com is uniquely like placed alongside a linear like television kind of presence, obviously the food network. But um, <laughs> so yeah, my, my job was like, I, I got promoted a couple of times and, and then took the job at uh, Food 52 because it was a little more like, front-facing writing stuff like that and mm-hmm. I started a column there and then and that just turned into like all these other things and and now yeah <laughs> well it's interesting it's, it's almost like you came out of the shadows because I think of that digital work as sort of being behind the scenes and like under yeah. the hood of the car and then to sort of have a column is suddenly like hey look at me you know and um and it's so funny because mine is the opposite where like I was so much more comfortable like writing and doing the blogging and all that stuff but like I had no idea how to do the like SEO and all that all the under the hood stuff I was terrible at but before we get too far down this path I think it's time to ask you Eric what did you have for lunch today as I was making my lunch I was like oh my god this is the lunch that I have to talk about (laughs) oh okay great (laughs) no weeknight like the a weekday it's usually you know I'm in the middle of a bunch of edits and like I'm waiting for an edit on a huge story that's coming out soon um and so I'm like stressed and I don't any times, but um, I, I did make kimchi jjigae yesterday morning because uh, I was hung. I mean, um, yeah, I was hungover. I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> That's okay. So I made a kimchi jjigae and it, it was so good. And what I love about kimchi jjigae is you sort of add on to it over the week mm-hmm. and it kind of like ferments even more and it gets funkier and funkier. And uh, this one had silken tofu and onions and it was pretty, pretty light and vegetarian, but this morning for lunch I just I really needed to eat quickly so I got one of those cup noodles like not the nice kind it's like the kind of <laughs> cup like, of noodles yeah <laughs> yeah like something like that and I poured some water my electric kettle really saves me you know and I I made the noodles and I strained the noodles and put them into the kimchi jjigae and I ate 
those noodles for for lunch and it was really good and now I'm just like really full and I feel bloated so but that's lunch <laughs> I have to say like I'm not familiar with so you're saying kimchiga is that how you oh yeah, yeah. kimchi chiga um that is that just means stew so it's like a, okay it's like a very everyday kind of dish um yeah with ripe kimchi and water mm-hmm. and some aromatics I usually start it with by blooming some gochugaru the mm-hmm. pepper powder in melted butter and then that creates like this lovely film of like pepper oil on top pepper grease oh nice i have some of those uh chili flakes korean chili flakes that i got like last christmas mm-hmm. i still haven't used so this is a good use for that yeah make sure they're in the freezer though they oh they do- shoot no they've been not in the freezer for like a whole year uh- <laughs> um you know, i don't have to but it's sort of my little trick i i always i just keep it in the fridge personally because mm-hmm a lot but um yeah definitely bloom that in some melted butter and smell it it smells like caramel it's like really incredible mm. it's like this flavor that i'm just trying to get people to use because i think it's so amazing so special well what's interesting so as your lunch therapist like immediately what i get is this sense of um like being busy and working but still having showing enough care to like make yourself something good even though like you had the cup of noodles you're still used making something homemade i mean you're using you're using something that you made and put a lot of love into and it feels like that kind of makes me think about like you transitioning into being a food writer where it's like you were trying to figure out a job you weren't sure what you were going to do and then but then you had this part of you that loved food so maybe we can start by just talking about that like your love for food and like where that came from and how that really started to show itself later yeah sure um i was talking to my colleagues about this the other day actually um i'm really interested in I should just find this person myself, but I want to talk to like a child psychologist or something and find (laughs) out if there's something in food that makes children's brains light up. Because Mm. as a kid, any video game, any TV show, anything that had food in it, whether it was a plastic uh, sunny side up egg or, you know, an actual image of, you know, someone stirring a pot that always lit up my senses. I don't know why Mm. it just gave me so much serotonin and I, I really... I just always loved looking at food. I always loved food. Mm-hmm. If there was food in a situation, it made everything seem more fun to me. So yeah, I don't know. I've just always loved food. It was always really important to me. And then I think it took, um, it took like changing careers and, and mm-hmm. sort of landing into food writing to realize that, and this is pretty recent, I would say, but it, it made me realize how, food could be used to tell stories. And I think people say that all the time, but um, I really found myself in writing. So mm-hmm. I think some people try to call me chef, but I'm actually a home cook and right. a homely home cook. And so <laughs> I think um, it's it's in the writing that I, I think I have found my comfort and food is just, uh, you know, an avenue to explore culture and to, mm-hmm. to talk to people. And so, yeah, I've just always loved food. Um, been cooking since I was little box mixes um mm-hmm. was, I think it started there maybe when I was like 13 um but that's also around the time I started cooking Thanksgiving so oh interesting and yeah. did you grow up with a lot of cooking in the house was there were your parents big cooks oh yeah my mom cooked a lot um but the, it's, it's this interesting thing where I'm sure many children of immigrants can relate but I, I didn't have an appreciation or an interest in cooking Korean food until this book deal actually because mm-hmm. um it was mom's food and something that she did so why would I have to cook it why would I have to learn when I was younger I didn't see the point but as a kid learning to make mashed potatoes learning to make a tur- only to roast a turkey you know mm-hmm. my mom had to do it later like uh, those those touchstones of American culture American culinary culture are the reasons I I became a cook, I would say I, because mm-hmm. I learned it all on my own by watching Food Network and reading, reading a lot. I learned a lot from cookbooks. Like, these aren't all cookbooks, but like, yeah, he's got a lot of books behind him and <laughs> it all look very lit, like literary. I'm very impressed. <laughs> no, I think um, it's in books that I, I got my education for sure. And um, so I think people often ask, like, you didn't go to culinary school. How did you learn all this? Yeah. And I it from books and TV. Which say. books would you recommend? I mean, for people who uh, want to do the same. Oh, how to eat Nigella Lawson is where you should oh, start. so good I, I, talk, I, mean, I had her book how to be a domestic goddess was one of my very first cookbooks and 
I think that's why I'm the domestic goddess I am today. (laughs) I loved your, uh, you you made a quiche recently, right? Or a tart. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because David Leibovitz just wrote an essay about quiche being like thought of as like a gay sort of dish for a long time in the seventies and eighties. And I remember in, in, on sitcoms growing up, like in the eighties, there'd be like a gay character. He's like, well, I have to go home and check on my quiche. And it would just be like this trope. And so it's so funny that like, I've never, I'd actually never made a quiche before, but I don't think I made a quiche. I think I made a tart, like a, like a Swiss chard tart because a quiche feels more wobbly in the middle. Um, And this was more like cooked through, but wait, wait, we broke the flow. You were saying Nigella Lawson. What are the other books? Yeah. And and while we're on Nigella, I always recommend Feast Mm because Feast is the one that made me really like want to become a writer. I would say Mm -hmm. that book was those head notes are so long. I was just like, oh my God, you can be really, you can be a cultural critic and mm-hmm. write, about, write about food. So that was really interesting to me. Um, yeah, I'm looking at my shelf over there. That's my cookbook shelf. Um, I really love the new Midwestern table. I, I sort of feel like a broken record. These are the books that I buy for people at Christmas. Yeah, I love it. I Honestly, whenever I do this on the podcast, I hang up and I literally go and try to buy the books. Um, oh. Although Craig, my partner, will kill me if I buy any more cookbooks because <laughs> yeah. I have so many. But keep going. So the Midwestern Table, Nigella Feast, what else? Yeah, um, I learned a lot from... I learned a lot from... Oh my God, this is hard. I, I? <laughs> I mean, oh. if it doesn't come to the mind to mind immediately. It's yeah, okay. yeah. Those are the main ones. Um, I really love Ana Del Conte's Risotto with Nettles. It's, it's kind of a random one, but mm. she's a British uh, Italian writer and she's Nigella's hero. And mm. that, that book, Risotto with Nettles, is a memoir. And at the end of each uh, chapter is a recipe um, based on the foods that she was talking about in the chapter. And um, they're really good recipes, actually. Like, I mean, she, I, I love, love books like that. I mean, when I read Amanda Hester's Cooking for Mr. Latte, Uh, which I still use all the time because it has this almond cake in it that I make almost basically for every dinner party. Um, But I just remember that I love that feeling of like reading like like a good story. And then like at the end, you get rewarded with a recipe that makes you think of that story. It's so good. That's what I love about food writing and just the essay format, um, which is like the, it's the eat column that I write. It's, I think Mm -hmm. it's ironic that that's sort of the format that now I do the most often because it's, it's the thing I like doing. It's, um, it's the thing I like reading as well. It's mm-hmm. it's so nice to read something that feels sort of literary. And then at the end, um, you're right. It's a reward. It's a, mm-hmm. even if you hated the column, even if you hated the writing, at least at the end there, you, you get to eat the thing. And I love that part of the reader writer relationship. And it's really important to me when, when readers make the dish and, and then mm-hmm. type it. and that part is super beautiful to me and something that I, I really cherish. It's a, uh, and I, I guess in a, in a really um, dark way, I have social media to think because it's <laughs> that connects you to people. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because it makes me think of your love for literature and books and this idea of like the intangible becoming tangible. It's like, you know, when you read Moby Dick, it's like you're not going to suddenly like have you know, uh, a whale, not on a whale hunt at the end of the book, but <laughs> if you read a, a, someone's essay about making kimchi or something, you know, it's like, you can literally then go out and buy cabbage and go into yeah. your kitchen and, and smell those smells. And, and even like the way to think about the thing that you're making, like somebody, you know, just the right description. Like I was just making, like when I made that tart the other day, I was reading, I think it was oh, if somebody, would, I was just was reading somebody about pie dough. Um, and they were like, it should look like chickpeas, like the, the butter when you pinch it into the flour should look like chickpeas. And I was like, oh, that's so helpful, you know, and just like those little descriptions, but like the language affects like what you're doing in the kitchen. And it's like, it comes to life in a way, you know. Uh, I think recipe writing is so, so interesting to me. Um, one of my colleagues, Sarah Bonestill, she's a senior staff editor and she, I was, I was going to t- talk to some students the college students and I was like what should I tell them and she she said advise them to take a technical writing class if they want to be a food writer because there is something to be said about saying giving directions really succinctly and well Mm -hmm. and clearly and um and I love getting to do it with a little voice because Mm -hmm. it is a form it's it's technical but um I I always like to write in a way that I would like to read it so Mm -hmm. If I'm instructing someone on how to roast a turkey or how to make pie dough or something like that, um, I always like to add sentences like, it should look like this. Don't worry if it looks like this. Mm-hmm. Like, 
gonna look like this for yeah and don't worry yeah. about that it's sort of um that's exactly how you would talk to someone if you were zoom calling them and explaining how to do something so I like when recipes sound like that because so often um I think recipe directions lose voice there's I love being able to read the directions and knowing I love, I love being able to know that um know who wrote it just by the directions and oh yeah that, they've really injected themselves into it yeah I feel like Gabrielle Hamilton's really good at that too. Like, in, you know, in her column where like, just like having this lit, like just having such, she has such strong opinions too, that like, yeah. it's like, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. Or, you know, and then, and then you can't unthink of it that way. So I think that's really cool. But I'm curious, like with your love for literature and writing, like were there influences who are not food writers that you think influenced your work? Oh yeah. Um, I always, I always cite these two because they're, they're modern writers that I, I don't know if I could consider them colleagues because I look up to them so much, but um, Gia Tolentino and Brian Washington, they both write about, well, Gia writes about culture in a way that's just so succinct and rigorous. And, um, and I just, I like writing about, I like writing like that sometimes, but then Brian Washington writes about food really well. And he's the example I always give when I tell people some of my favorite food writing is actually by not by not food writers. I, th I think the best food writing is written by just people who don't consider themselves food writers. It's because, and so I always try to write like that, actually. I'm always trying to think about how a non-food writer would write it because yeah. we do have tropes. And I think it's, there are some great things about having um, a genre. Sorry that, about that. <laughs> I thought Craig was singing in the back rooms. So I was yeah. like, I just messaged him. I was like, can you stop singing? And, he, and he's on the phone. So <laughs> sorry about that. I know that was really rude, but keep no. going. Yeah, so the tropes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah just um i think food writing uh because it's such a specific context um can lose some of its its sparkle and i think if you try to i always advise students for instance to write about food in a way that with with words that aren't food related so mm -hmm. um and then just the descriptions come out so much more interesting and also you're able to describe things in a much more it's not just a unique way, but in a more specific way. And that's, that's mm -hmm. actually famous too. That's like helpful. So I like, well, it's to, interesting. It's like, it's a, it's a classic question of like, whether you're just in general, whether writing can really be taught. Cause you know, mm -hmm. I, I ended up going to grad school. I got my MFA in dramatic writing and, um, and I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I got that degree and I think I learned structure and storytelling, but at the end of the day, like the people who I've who I think were the most successful just had something within them that they needed to get out. And it, it was, it was going to come out no matter what, like they were, they were going to get words on the page and get that out there regardless of, of, you know, what stood in their way. And I, I just think sometimes that's what it takes more than anything. It's like, you have to have that drive and then talent, you know, um, is important, but it's not always the most important thing. I think, I think it's more the drive to be a writer. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> So interesting and complex, but uh, I can I can talk about the writing thing in a sec. But I think of that I, I think about cooking in that way. Um, mm -hmm. Melissa and I, Melissa Clark and I, were um, doing some like you know company event. We were we were baking a cake together uh, on a Zoom call, and um, she she was like, "Cooking can be taught." And then I was like, "Oh, it's so interesting because I've always felt that you either have it or you don't," and that sounds mm -hmm. super elitist but I just mean that you either have like hand taste or you or you don't and, and Korean there's this word called sonmat and it's sort of it's like do you know how to season your food like do, can you like cook mm -hmm. I don't know and I think and, and it translates as hand taste yeah hand taste so like taste I, I love that. and um I, I have this like my cookbook um which is called Korean American it's it's always mm -hmm. this a battle between whether or not you can really teach something that elusive because um I don't know and I, I, I believe that you can and that's why I write recipes and stuff but uh -huh. um there is something about um our industry where sometimes I, I wonder if we forget that the reason people are in certain positions maybe not all the time but usually it's because they're they're actually like it's maybe it's because they they're cook they're like good cooks um <laughs> you kind of forget that because it's so much about what's on the page but if you taste if you taste their food, you're like, oh, this makes sense mm -hmm. that you're like, you know, doing this. But because in our personal lives, we are like the cooks, right? We're like, um, so anyway, I always think we forget that sometimes. And but um, but, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's sort of a similar thing though with writing, where it's like you have to have that drive or curiosity to cook 
to be a good cook. It's like, you know, I, th- I think so many people who I'm sure follow you and follow me are exhausted at the end of the day. They work, you know, normal nine to five jobs or nine to six jobs. And it's like, and to like then like open a cookbook or then like start to like have to motivate themselves. It's just hard to find that. And I think the, f- the people that do have that drive, it's just, it's just there. It's like, they just have this thing within them that wants to cook same way. Like some people just want to write. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but, but, I, but I do think if you have that drive um, to write or to cook, you can be taught then at that point, like you can be taught your craft. Like you can be taught how to write well, you can be taught how to cook well, but you have to have the drive, I think. Yeah. The drive is important. Uh, yeah. I do believe that um, if you love something, then the rest will kind of follow. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think about writing in that way because I only recently called myself a writer or considered myself a writer, you know, and Mm -hmm. because it's something that I always loved. It's always the thing that I felt the best at in terms of like whatever two skills I have, you know, cooking and writing and writing is the thing that I always thought like, okay, this is what people know me for, remember me for. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I can look back on college courses, for instance, where I took workshops and uh, I took a lot of creative writing classes and, I did learn form and I read a lot. I think reading is mm-hmm. important. And, you know, all of those, um, you know, touchstones of education maybe did help in the way I think about my writing now. But when I really think about it, I think I, I learned how to write on the job um, mm-hmm. from editors, from um, all the people I talk to and just from practicing every day. And so in that way, with this job, especially writing mm-hmm. is definitely a craft and it's something mm-hmm. that I, each piece feels like a learning opportunity it's each piece is like an exam or something I still feel what like are the, school <laughs> what much. are the things that you've learned the most like since writing for the New York Times like what what habits have changed or like what's the thing that you used to do that you no longer do it's funny because I just feel guilty because I, I feel like nothing's changed in regard to like how I write which is always at the last minute and it's not mm-hmm. that I'm not it's not that I'm just it's not that I'm only procrastinating I I am I always do that but it's that um I'm like living in it for every day like until that moment when I finally just go to the computer and like type it out and it's the pressurized environment of the deadline that gets me to like the next you know draft and so um in terms of what I've learned though is I I think maybe I've gotten better at writing in like in those pressurized moments I've gotten better at churning out the draft instead of Mm -hmm like you know collapsing into myself (laughs) (laughs) it seems like the form of those essays regardless of who's writing them but for the magazine is like something personal some anecdote about like something personal then like lead into the recipe and like talk about the food and then like link it all together at the end yeah yeah, yeah, you're right there's um the magazine (laughs) columns have a very specific um form which is like the food essay and um i would love to hear someone you know really analyze that and look at evidence of you know food essays throughout history because but there 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 is like a structure um but Mm -hmm. I guess my like my most recent one for instance um is is a deep like reported piece and that one is so different because the magazine columns do this too sometimes but you have a document with like five interviews you know that you've done or 10 however many and then all the all the recordings and you're sort of you're sort of just like cutting and pasting and you feel like it feels like collaging or something. And then at the end, you're like so happy with the result because you made a piece of like art and, um, but you don't feel like the, the reported pieces are so interesting to me. Cause I feel like I didn't, I don't, I don't write them. It's they're more like they present themselves. That sounds so annoying, but you know, <laughs> they're not my stories. They're like other people's stories. So those, those are, that's something I've, I'm, I'm learning on the job and trying to get better at and, um, I'm also just uh, I'm terrified of like talking to strangers so mm. that's something that um, I think I'm getting a little better at and something I'm learning on the job and I really love this job because there are different ways of writing and I, I'm trying to just get good at all of them or I'm, I want to get good at as many of them as I can. <laughs> well I'm curious like in terms of just exposure like I feel like Food 52 had its commenters and it's people in the community who had strong opinions but then to suddenly be writing in this newspaper that goes around the world and famously has like the new york times cooking comments it's like even an instagram feed like how has that felt to put yourself out there in that way and do you do you read the comments you know as they say (laughs) i shouldn't um sometimes they're really (laughs) but uh, i would say that um 
it's not that different. Uh, it doesn't feel different because because of the pandemic. I feel very lucky that um, so much of my work I just do in this tiny apartment. It's this mm-hmm. tiny place, and so it all feels it feels the same because I'm just doing my job and my my world is this computer screen. It sounds really mm-hmm. sad, but like when my my, <laughs> my phone when I'm reporting or my books when I'm reading. But and, and I'm such a hermit, so I stay in. But it's when I step out of the house that I kind of realize or I kind of like feel the significance and, and then that can get a little overwhelming. So I try not to go out of the house too much, but I try to um, not think about it, I think, because I think that would drive me crazy. <laughs> well, I'm curious like, about the relationship between being a hermit and um, cooking. Like, you know, I mean, because I've always felt like I got really into cooking when I lived alone and I was miserable in law school and I was, I started to like feed myself. And like, there was some, something about that, that idea of like, just taking care of myself that then like allowed me to like open myself up and then start taking care of other people. And that's soon after I met Craig and that, you know, soon after I started a food career, but um, I'm curious about like the difference between cooking for yourself and cooking for other people and how you think about all that. Yeah. Um, I think I really relate to your story because I learned how to cook from the Nigella cookbooks in grad school, mostly, I would say college too, but mostly grad school. Cause I really had to feed myself and I couldn't, I didn't have time to leave the house all the time. Cause it was just so busy, but, um, you know, and then it, it's sort of like maturation, right? It's like adulthood. I think, I think about that table for one column I wrote at food mm-hmm. too. That was a lot of me really just like starting out and just like testing the waters. I was like, what is this food writing thing? And I, I would, I would talk about these discoveries I made on my own in my own kitchen, but I think as I got older, I mean that wasn't that long ago, of course, but it, you know, <laughs> two years, a lot can happen in you know, four years. But I would say, over time, my dinner parties have changed. So originally, the dinner parties were really great, like really um, extravagant and mm-hmm. so ridiculous, like. <laughs> There's one thing I made that actually is really still good, but it sounds so over the top, but these maple candied toasts with camembert, it's like, it just mm-hmm. sounds annoying, but um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an Amy Thielen recipe and it's not supposed to sound that fancy, but she's, a, she's such a genius and it's not even in any of her books. It's, um, it's in, it was from her Food Network show and you just cut up a baguette and then you melt some butter and maple syrup in a cast iron skillet and you basically lacquer and fry the bread and mm. they become candied and but they're still chewy on the inside because they're it's bread and then um I love that texture the most crispy chewy and then you just put slices of camembert on top and they're really oozy and it's just this really intensely salty sweet appetizer and so a lot of the dishes were like that they were like that sounds amazing actually yeah yeah that's the real I should make that again <laughs> but um I just mean that my dinner parties used to be so much fancier but now I think they're much more about giving like providing pleasure and mm-hmm. nourishment it's like there's something about I think I I think I've grown up or I think I was just mm-hmm. I, the purpose of cooking for someone else has has changed for me it used to be about showing off but now it's just about like feeding feeding someone who really needs to eat because mm-hmm. they meeting soon or you know whatever um whether it's my partner or, or friends who come over and need some tea and sympathy yeah <laughs> I'm curious when you were in school and you're on your path to getting a PhD it feels like so much of that was probably about like reading critically and thinking critically about the books that you read and I'm curious is it difficult for you to turn that part of your brain off when you're writing your columns and cooking your food I mean are you, are you hard on yourself do you do you sometimes apply too much criticism to what you're doing or or are you good about that? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, I think, I think I love writing critically about food and being critical of my food and having people like Genevieve Coe is my editor edit in a very critical way. I think I love that because I have very strong feelings about food, but I think when I was doing the PhD, I realized I don't have that. I don't have like that many strong opinions about books. I just like reading them and I enjoy the stories, but, um, people, you always have to have an opinion, right? That's how you, um, make it in many industries but in food I I have a lot of opinions and it's something that I just I feel very fiery about I always I always know what I think because it's my palate and how I like to eat and how I like to cook what ingredients I like to use um I think 
food is much easier to be critical about for me. And that's, that's how I knew I, uh, that I was in the right place for sure. What about like a lot of the conversations we're having now in our culture about like, about cultural appropriation and things like that? I mean, is that stuff that you feel like you engage with in a way or like want to take on because of your background thinking critically about stuff like that? I think so. I think the way I do it though, is, um, I, every story I pitch is to, or my, my hope is that they sort of subvert very normative or traditional modes of thinking about something. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, for instance, I think a lot of people think that it's one very specific thing, but that completely negates just <laughs> millions of people in America who celebrate in another way, but maybe their mm-hmm. dinner table is just not on the food magazine cover, you know? Right. Um, so every story I do, even like the Stouffer's piece, that was actually, um, I wrote about Stouffer's mac and cheese. I like recreated the, the texture and everything. And um, the reporting for that story, not all of it, most of it didn't make it in because it was, it was supposed to be like a simpler like cooking story. But um, the, the, the pattern I was fi- finding and the reason I was interested in Stouffer's is because um, Stouffer's is for people who didn't grow up with a mac and cheese recipe, you know, and people, but people who wanted to be part of the American traditions. And, um, and so Stouffer's means a lot to immigrant families and children of immigrants. And that nostalgia, um, is really, really important to capture and represent, I think. And so I was happy to like, I think, I think of it in that way, um, mm-hmm. in terms of how to subvert n- normative, like, ideas of what things should be because I just think it's such a reductive way to think and there I just know I also know that it's 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 how a lot of people think and what I like about that is it's like it sort of feels positive in a way it's like you're you know instead of like you know canceling somebody or quote unquote or like you know bringing you know highlighting all the awful things that go on in, in the food culture. It's more about just holding something up and being like, Hey, let, let's, let's look at Stouffer's again and like rethink it. And, you know, yeah. and it, it's, it's taking it from a different angle and an important angle, but it's not, it, it's not like what's what, what I think so many people are, are, are almost exhausted from this culture. You know, the, the, the thing about just basically tearing down as many people as we possibly can. Yeah. Um, and the question of authenticity comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, it's really, I, f- I feel like my, my pieces, I, I definitely have like an agenda. Usually it's like mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to, to say something against those people who think that there is like one way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the subject, the conversation around cultural appropriation is um, it's doing this like weird whiplash. Like it's coming back to like people being like, oh wait, maybe, maybe it's okay to be yeah. a Korean person who cooks another cuisine. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, Cause what does authentic really mean? And, um, and you know, I, I think, I'm really excited about, I swear I'm not just like, you know, trying to segue to my book, but my, the, my, my book does have just like, it, it has Argentine empanadas in it and it has, um, I don't know, it has lemon pepper seasoning. It has like these things that people from the outside would maybe want to cancel me for or something because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, what is this Korean person doing with an Argentine empanada recipe? But when you read it, you're like, oh, there was this wave of immigration to South America. And, um, you know, that's where I... I I, I just think that there are always reasons for why we eat certain dishes and it's important to be a reporter and to like look into those reasons because mm-hmm. that context is so interesting and it's not as simple as, you know, this person eats this and this person eats that. So right. Yeah. That's kind of limited. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I have the new David Chang and Priya Krishna book and whenever they do a recipe in there, that's from another culture. They say, you know, if you want to hear more about this culture, like, read read the experts at the end of this book and then they like interview experts but i've never seen that before in a cookbook and it's like wow we're really like moving along here so yeah is oh my gosh she's just such so, such a genius um she that, that i thought that was so smart i was listening to them on the i was listening to priya on the taste podcast and she was mentioning that and i think that i, th- I just think that's so smart so cool mm-hmm. yeah i think also i mean just to get down to it too like people don't no, people are so bad at crediting, like crediting mm-hmm. cultures, crediting other people. I see people stealing my recipes all the time. I don't know. It's just, it's very frustrating that it's not a standard in our industry. It's just, just do the, just give someone credit. It's so easy mm-hmm. to like, I have a gravy recipe that my friend Lauren did, and I don't want to publish it without crediting her. Like no one cares. Yeah. 
I mean, I care. You know, <laughs> wow, not... Lauren is listening to this right now. She's not very happy. Yeah, nobody cares. Who nobody. She is. Wow. So <laughs> no, but you know, she's not a public figure. And right. But who cares? Like, she deserves credit. <laughs> like, it's not, she gave me the idea, you know, and yeah. stuff like that. You know. Well, something you alluded to earlier that I'm, I want to hear more about. I mean, you talked about being the ch- child of immigrants. Is that right? And, yeah. and the, um, the food that you cooked at the beginning um, wasn't Korean food. And, um, and I, I wonder, like, you know, I've had guests on this podcast. In fact, I just had um, Bill Esparza, who um, writes about Mexican food here in LA for Eater. He's a James Beard Award winner. But he talked about his father really not wanting him to speak Spanish, like because they were immigrants from Mexico. And he, and he didn't want his son to um, stand out, like, or to be too rooted in his Mexican culture. And I'm just curious about your desire to cook um, not Korean food at the beginning, and then maybe like, and then ultimately writing a Korean American cookbook, like how, how that all worked out for you or that journey, what that journey was like for you. Yeah. Well, that's a really therapy ish question. Um, <laughs> you. Well, that's I, the podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when I logged onto the zoom, I was excited. Cause I was like, Oh, I do need some therapy right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I'm not licensed, but I do my, <laughs> um, just good conversation. Um, you know, yeah, I think originally it, probably came out of rebellion a little bit um I wanted to be I wanted to be more American I think there was some of that um whatever that meant at the time and um I think at the time I thought it meant um cooking more American food maybe that was a little part of it but it was also just exciting to have liberation like outside of my mother's kitchen mm-hmm. um because she never roasted anything you know so I discovered the oven <laughs> which yeah. storage for pans for a long time for my whole life and then one day I roasted vegetables. It's that Ina Garden roasted vegetable recipe. I remember it. It's like Brussels sprouts, carrots, onions, maybe potatoes. It's kind of random, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's salt and pepper, olive oil, and then you roast it. And then everyone ate that and was like, whoa, what's this? And I was like, um, yeah, that's the oven. Um, <laughs> then, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think originally it was like that. And then, you know, as I started to sort of talk to agents and, and editors um, trying to figure out what the first book was, I you know, it made sense for it to be the Korean one because I really felt like before I could explore this career and really like start, you know, I really still feel like I haven't even debuted yet. It's like this, this book feels like my beginning, you know, and yeah. felt like I had to just, I had to do this first because not like had to, wanted to, but, you know, in doing so, I also just gained so much, um, so much, so many new skills and the way I cook now is just like so different because of writing right, my dog is barking i don't know if you can hear yeah. <laughs> dog is sleeping very quietly um but yeah i i think um i didn't realize how important it was um for myself yeah uh, <laughs> winston shut up <laughs> doing a podcast oh, wow. sorry yeah oh. we can keep going though. yeah keep talking <laughs> uh but yeah just basically i learned a lot about myself and gained a lot of skills and i think this was formative in my education. Sorry about that. We both had dogs making noises, so I don't feel as bad. Okay, so you were saying, so yeah, um, where were you? Oh, I don't know. I think I just finished that. Um, <laughs> it was as part of my education, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I'm curious, like, how did your family react when you were like roast making these Ina Garten recipes? And like, when you, when you started to go down that road, were they supportive of it? Or were they, you know, dis- dismissive or? Uh, yeah, they're very supportive. Um, oh, can you cough to hairball? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Our animals don't want us to be doing this podcast for some reason. I gotta keep all these animals in and then post photos of them soon yes. uh, with the podcast. But yeah, I, um, you know, in my memory, they were supportive of everything. They're, they're super, I think my parents, I was very lucky and my parents let both of us, my brother and me, um, explore the arts and, and, and logistically they were happy to have free food. You know, it wasn't free food, but you know, someone who they didn't have to cook, um, on those nights that I was experimenting. And so I think they always were interested in my, you know, random, gourmet um mm-hmm. little dinners that I was trying to cook at 13 14 15 um yeah did you write a column am I wrong um about the pandemic though and like being with your mom um yeah, yeah, cooking yeah. with her can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah I think um it was sort of a nice I was still in the middle of writing 
the rest of my book. And so mm-hmm. I was asked to write this Mother's Day column. And um, when I wrote it, it really helped. It really centered me. I, I was able to find this narrative with the help of great editors, you know, at, at the times. And this story really narrates that year that I spent quarantined with my family. And uh, specifically with my mother, I was cooking by her side for the whole, you know, nine months, um, writing down her recipes, but also she was tasting all my food, like mm-hmm. my random Korean American kind of inventions and, you know, helping me taste and measure. And um, in the end, I think I, I picked two recipes that really exemplified the knowledge exchange that happened. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the kimchi that she makes, um, it has so many like secrets and little special kind of mm-hmm. twists and turns and, so I really, like, for instance, she puts pine nuts in her kimchi. And what, what that means is that the jjigae, the stew that you make from the kimchi, ends up being perfumed by this amazing, like, subtle pine nut, you know, mm-hmm. background. And um, so that was something I learned from her. And then uh, she learned from me how to <laughs> roast vegetables on a sheep, <laughs> which was um, my sheep pan bibimbap. And it was just funny for her. That was around the time Genevieve Co. also put out that sheep pan bacon and eggs and a lot of mm-hmm. people in the comments were like being all annoying about it but it's kind of it's genius because uh you can fry a bunch of eggs at once and they don't stick if you are using a, a regular person like sheet pan you know a real mm-hmm. one um like a you know and, and and so i just the power of the sheet pan made so much sense for the a dish like bibimbap which t- takes so much time to uh to saute each individual vegetable in the rainbow and uh, it takes right well when you talked earlier about quote-unquote authenticity I'm curious like when you're cooking Korean food and writing this cookbook is there I mean I I had had I had Hedy McKinnon on the podcast we talk a lot about this but that idea of like how far is too far like you know if you're if you're changing a recipe or that's you know a historic recipe from a culture and like did you did you feel yourself you know, pushing the boundaries too, too much, or did you want to just break through or how did that all feel for you? Yeah. Um, I found myself, it was hard in the beginning. I was so anxious. I would just get like hives about it. I'd be like, Oh no, Koreans are going to be so upset if I don't have an authentic this or that. And very quickly in the process, I shed all that. And I I started to gain some confidence when I, Mm -hmm really started to understand Korean ingredients and, and cooking and food and learning from my mom. And I realized that I just need to write from my own experience. And so um, a lot of the recipes, if, if people do, if anyone is upset that they're, you know, kind of not traditional, none of them are traditional, actually. Right. And even my, even that word traditional, I don't understand, I don't really know what it means, because what I'm actually depicting is the Korean American experience. Mm-hmm. And but w- with that, you it's just like any other recipe, any other culture, um, the way you write about it's really important. So the head notes are, they're hard, they were hard to write. Like you have to just do so much work. You have to be like, the original thing is this, blah, blah, blah. but I mm-hmm. want to, my mom lived in Georgia and she didn't have this and blah, blah, blah. That's why there are jalapenos and everything. And so, <laughs> you know, you have to do that dance, but I think that's what makes the book really interesting. And I'm looking forward to people reading it because it's not just a Korean American book. It's like a Korean American Atlanta book. It's about mm-hmm. what it was like to grow up in Atlanta and why certain dishes happen. Um, and for instance, I have a lemon pepper bulgogi and it's not even, they're married, like it's a marinated thinly sliced grilled beef, but mm-hmm. marination happens after and it's very untraditional um, and it's a dry rub and it's homemade lemon pepper and it's a very Atlanta recipe, but it's also very Korean. And I just love that um, and has like pickled shallots and cilantro and, yeah. stuff. and I had a more authentic you know quote-unquote pugogi but I was like why am I why am I putting this out like no one needs this for me like mm-hmm. we have Mangchi, we have um, amazing people who already have developed those you know documents of culture um, my family loved this lemon pepper pugogi the most it tastes it's like some of their favorite it's like one of their favorite dishes so yeah I, I think I I started to get less scared and then I started Mm -hmm. to I won't say that I got brave but I just I started to get almost um I really don't care about those people anymore and (laughs) yeah well yeah I mean it gets boring after a while if you're just making the same things over and over again it's interesting because I was going to ask you about like Korean culture right now it feels like it's having a moment in America with squid game and parasite and stuff and like is that something like because I feel like 
it, it feels fairly new in terms of pop culture. Um, but is that something that like you think you would have enjoyed like when you were younger? Like would that have been helpful to like have that interest um, earlier? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I never, I'm a really nostalgic person, but I do feel like it was important to just not feel seen for my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That person I became yeah. is I'm a very like, you know, inside I'm a very fiery person. And I have, um, I think the drive came from that, you know, lack of representation on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, now I just love it. I'm so proud. And I, I, I love anything that comes out. Anytime I come across a Korean artist, a writer, anyone, I, I follow them and I like try to get to know them and stuff. But I think, um, and so I love that it's changing, but I also think it was, the struggle was like necessary. I don't want to say mm -hmm. struggle because, um, you know, so many people have it so much harder, but I think a lot of my book is just really about making like show like it's not just about making sure people feel seen it's a it's a it narrates that concept of not feeling seen your whole life until mm -hmm. one moment well I'm curious I'm, I can't believe I haven't asked this yet but so how in terms of not being seen and I mean I feel like you talked about having a boyfriend so I think it's safe to say that you're gay <laughs> and like and and how, yeah. did, how did that um how did that fact factor into all of this like was that something that um you struggled with or was that an easier part of your identity to deal with funnily enough it was just the much easier part <laughs> but ah, funny but yeah that's it, interesting it's because my coming out was really um I don't want to say idyllic but I wrote an essay about it and that narrates very you know <laughs> in <laughs> detail what happened you know the events of that night but I do think um I had it easier than a lot of people and so I, I was never I don't know I, the that part is the part that was much easier than the than feeling than experiencing racism my whole life and um especially in like you know editorial rooms and stuff like that I think there's there's so much we hold on to as people of color who develop recipes and it just seems so simple it's just food but uh, there's so much there's so much politics there and so this is definitely a job where I finally feel you know seen and appreciated and celebrated for my differences and I think um and it's it's not that the tides are changing. It's that um, well, the tides are changing, but I also just think people are thinking more outside of themselves now. Finally, and that feels mm -hmm. really. I think it's really important. I'm I'm trying to do that more too. Of course, it's like. Well, can you can you think of like a specific moment? I mean, without calling out like a specific person yeah. necessarily, but like yeah, where I'm you happy, felt that the most. <laughs> I'm happy to call out anyone, but um, <laughs> <I'm> just <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's one editor, um, you know, a few years ago who really dismissed Friendsgiving and this person just didn't think it was worth covering because and it's just such a great example of that person's myopic world like this um certain class level white um and this this perspective was just so so dismissive of a whole other part and actually the piece that's coming out soon is about the queerness of Friendsgiving I'm just so excited for this person to read that <laughs> like I want for yeah. that to see it and be like oh my god I was so wrong um and it's not about like making people feel like, you know, not, it's not just about like, it's not about correcting people. It's just, I, I think, I think, I think uh, it's hard in those contexts to defend yourself when you feel so like powerless and, and mm -hmm. worthless. And so I think, um, yeah, that's an example of Friendsgiving, like, you know. But was that about your Korean identity? Like, I mean, cause you talked about like feeling okay, raci really. racism in the room. And so I'm curious, like, because Friendsgiving yeah. feels like it's more about being queer, right? Like you have queer yeah, friends yeah. around you. Yeah. Um, I think the Friendsgiving piece is about immigrants, actually, as well. Oh, is so, it? Oh, okay, got it. Right, yeah. that. It's it's related. They're they're very related, inter intersectional. Uh, it's like an intersectional um, conversation, I would say. It, it's hard because like it is coming out soon, so like I, I should just like talk about it. But um, um, yeah, and in terms of more singularly you know race related things I don't know if I have that example yet um it's something I'm processing you know it's mm -hmm. uh so that's something that I I'm figuring out how to talk about you know and I think the way I have to do it is through writing first so um yeah I'm working on some essays and those will those will share those stories I think yeah I just read um Alexander Chi's book how to write an autobiographical novel yeah. And it's so interesting because it's all about that subject, which is like writing about the most painful 
things yeah. in your life. And, and there's an essay about him being abused as a kid. And wow. it's about, and the way he writes it is about, it's very meta. It's a, it's about trying to write about that and not being able to write about that. And so it's like, he's circling around it. So I think that's really interesting when you said you need to write about it first before you yeah. can talk about it. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I think, especially things like this, I, I don't feel that I've processed it yet, you know, really? still, okay. most times. So I'm, I'm like, I think it's one of those things that has to sit a little bit and yeah, I really think time is power. So I just, I really like the idea of making sure I do it justice. Um, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Well, on a happier note, we um, always end these podcasts with uh, the follow-up to what, what did you have for lunch, which is what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh my God. I'm looking at my apartment and it's just such a mess. Uh, and I don't know I probably won't maybe I won't cook because my kitchen's a mess um I do love so I live in a neighborhood that has a lot of really good Dominican food so I might order mm -hmm. some I saw someone eating tostones and uh mm. and then you know rice and beans um that could be a nice just sort of like comfort food dinner for me um especially after the week I've had I had a there's a lot of stories it's just Thanksgiving for us right now so it's a lot of yeah yeah, we didn't really talk about Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh yeah, did we? I, 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 oh. Yeah, I think I forgot. Like, well, you said you're having you're having friendsgiving this year. Uh, more of like with my boy, a boyfriend's giving. Oh right, right. You're going out of town. <laughs> you're gonna go, and then you're gonna come back, and yeah. you're gonna cook just for the two of you. Yeah, actually, uh, I really want to try th turkey thighs. I've actually never cooked those. Uh -huh. I love thighs. So, yeah. is thighs versus like the legs? Is it like attached like thighs and legs? Mm, that'd be cool. But um, I think you can, you, you buy them, you can buy them separately in parts. Um, but, you know, legs are great too, but man, in, on a chicken, don't you think that the thigh is like the best? I just, oh yeah. I love chicken thighs, but turkey legs always freak me out because they have these weird bones in them. They're like vertical and they always kind of like take me by surprise if I'm having a turkey leg. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, what else are you going to cook for this um, very romantic Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Danielle Galarza gave me this, the idea of, she did this for WAPO, um, the mini pies, like mini tart, tartlets basically. Mm, and so I love it. I kind of want to use my muffin pan. So not mini, but muffin pan to make, um, little pies so that I can have all the pies. I really want to, I really want to make a cranberry curd pie. It's the mm. David Tannis recipe on NYT cooking. That's really good. Melissa's pecan pie. I just, I have to try it has maple sugar in it which sounds so good to me um huh. we have to have a pumpkin pie as well so i i think i'm gonna kind of like do that um pies yeah and is your well, boyfriend a, a good eater yeah he's a good eater. <laughs> i think that's hard to find in the gay community i realize like the reason i've been with craig for 15 years is that when i met him it was so exciting to like just meet another gay man who like actually ate food because <laughs> uh -huh, so yeah. many are just like so body upset. I mean maybe it's generational I don't know if that's true of your generation but certainly like when I was in New York in the early 2000s it just felt like every every gay man that I would meet would be like on some kind of diet or some kind of cleanse or some kind of workout regimen so that's good that you found an eater he eats a lot um which is so helpful because um because when you're trying to get rid of all your food it's just so <laughs> so much of it when you're a recipe developer yeah. Is he ever critical of your cooking? Like, will he ever say like, Ooh, this is a little too spicy, for me, <laughs> underdone. You know, he's really, he really doesn't. And maybe, maybe he should feel more welcome too, but he, he never criticizes <laughs> my food. Uh, he, he helps me with tasting notes. Um, that feels different than, um, but he never, if it's like a recipe test, he will, but he just, he always just, he's, he's quite agreeable, I think. And he likes everything. Um, but <laughs> yeah what is your um, recipe writing process like how do you go about it um I think it's different for every recipe but um I think it's it often stems from an idea and so it's me trying to chase that idea um for instance um when I was recreating the Stouffer's mac and cheese it was a very clear idea in my head mm -hmm. uh, it's based off of something and those are the hardest actually but then the, the, the loveliest ones are the easier ones are when you're just making dinner for yourself and it's so mm -hmm. delicious. And you're like, and I go back to my editor. I'm like, Hey, I just actually, the sheet pan bibimbap was that it was, 
uh, it just came from my dinner. So I think a lot of my, some of my most successful recipes just come from my dinner. <laughs> so you make it, so, you, so you're just in the kitchen without thinking about having to write it down first huh? and then you make it. And then yes. do you write, do you write it out like a test recipe, like just out of your head? Like do you just type it up and then test that afterwards? Yeah, basically I might like, uh, it's sort of trying to remember what I did. That's mm-hmm. not, I'm not really actually great at writing it down in the moment because I'm scarfing it down first, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to do that with some of the, the projects I'm working on now is like, I just will type up a recipe just out of my head. It's almost like music, like where like you can kind of like hear the music in your head. Like, oh, I feel like that yeah. with food, it's like, okay, I can kind of taste what this is going to be like. And then I test that. And then however, it, it's I change it while I cook it, I'll just like change yeah. it within the recipe. So yeah, it takes many tries. I'm, I'm not as, um, I'm very diligent, but also like kind of slow maybe so it, it takes mm-hmm. me many tries and I just I always want it to be so perfect so there's a lot of just there's a lot of food uh that happens no waste but there's a lot of food <laughs> well Eric so it went and we're gonna wrap up now but when does your book book come out it comes out March 29th 2022 so next year um but nice. we're sending out digital galleys this week it's it's all happening people have already read it um people are writing reviews already it's pretty crazy it's really they're writing reviews to come out and for the book that comes out in March yeah, um, it's like a it's like a thing in publishing, like NetGalley and stuff. And Nigella blurbed it, which was oh wow, that was a dream come true for me. But um, I think it it it's weird that people have to wait much longer, even though it's already in some people's hands, not physically, but you know, digitally, <laughs> digitally, yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations, so fun. Yeah, well, um, this was so nice talking to you. I feel like we're old friends already. So uh, <laughs> if you're ever in LA, look me up or. If- I'm in New York. I'll yeah. send you an email. Uh, yeah. But thanks again. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Thanks. You too. Have a good one. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye.